Let me read this text to you from Mark 12. One of the teachers of the religious law asked Jesus a question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Love your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no commandment that is greater than these two. The first commandment in the spiritual life is to love God. Give yourself completely to the pursuit of the divine. No half measures, no happy medium, no settling. Make it first, make it foremost. Pursue life and love and pursue awakening and pursue the divine, pursue God. And the second commandment is as important, love people. Do right by people, care for people, watch over people, promote the well-being of other people. There are no spiritual truths of greater importance than these two. They embody the essence of following Jesus, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you've uh, heard that we're kind of in between lengthy lessons, and I'm doing a series of kind of standalone lessons, and a lot of them are provoked by me thinking about my own soul. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked about examining my own afflictive emotions and finding things there that I didn't like to see, finding hatred in my heart. And this has caused me to see things inside of myself that I would prefer not to see because I like to think of myself as a good guy. And if you look inside your heart and you find hatred inside of you, it's kind of hard to hold on to your image of yourself that you're a good guy. But there it is, and so I've been feeling my feelings, and I've been standing outside of my feelings, not identifying with them, but trying to feel them and reflecting on them, and all the stuff that we talked about in that last lesson on the prayer of self-awareness. I've been digging into that. And so along the way, reflecting on hatred has also caused me to reflect on love. And then in the last couple weeks, I've had a couple of um, conversations which precipitated in my mind the idea that it would be worth taking some of these reflections that I've been doing in my life and bringing them here for a Sunday summer lesson. So here we are, reviewing the centerpiece of our faith tradition. What does love mean? How do we love our neighbor, even our enemy as Jesus taught us? How do we live this out? It's a big topic. Again, it's the centerpiece of our faith, so it It's not surprising that it's a big topic, so we'll have to limit our focus to a little bit of sliver that will fit on 13 pages of notes, and so today we'll focus on loving people. Love's a tricky word in English. I've heard that the Inuits have a lot of words for snow. Their lives are so immersed in snow that their language reflects a nuanced understanding of snow's many varied ways. Followers of Jesus, we should have a lot of words for love for the same reason, because we are immersed in it. And consequently, we should develop a nuanced understanding of love's many ways. Now, if you're following the podcast, you've heard me talk about several Greek words that work better than our English words. Uh, different dimensions of sexuality, different dimensions of love. And I've talked about agape and eros and philos and mania and pragma. And then there were a couple that I didn't mention in the podcast, pathos, which is where we get this idea of compassion, and storge, which is kind of the empathy that comes with familiarity. 
So in other words, you've heard me use the expression, at some point people might be a jerk, but they're my jerk. And so when they're my jerk, I am able to see something about their idiosyncrasies and I become their defender as opposed to do that. Well, the Greek word for that kind of familiarity-born affection is called storge. So there's this vast, nuanced understanding of love in Greek that we do not have in English. In English, we just say love. And that word love has to cover a lot of different meanings. And language has power because how we frame our words shapes how we frame our thoughts. And in our English language, we tend to reduce love's meaning down to a kind of narrow band of its many varied multifaceted meanings. And the one that we choose most is to make love, in English, a synonym for desire. Desire for the, dese- for the deep and desire for the shallow are both covered under one word, love. Desire for the profound and desire for the mundane are both covered under one word, love. I love Denise. I desire Denise. One word. I love pizza. I desire pizza. It's the same word. I desire God, I love God, I desire my job, I love my job. These widely divergent experiences all captured using one word, and that's just talking about desire. But when we look at love and we realize that it's even greater than desire, then we realize that there are multiple facets of all the other meanings of love as well. So, love is more than desire, And even within desire, love is a multi-finely tuned understanding of a broad wealth of human experience. But one of the meanings of love is to experience not just the desire for the thing, but to experience the desire for the good for the thing. Love wills good for the other. Love wants good for the other. We do have this idea in English, but we don't use the word love for it. We use the word benevolence. The word benevolence comes from two roots, bene, where you get benefits, that's the good, and then volition or vol, uh, where the root, where you get, where we get the word will, volition. So it's the will for good, the will to work on behalf of the good of someone else. That meaning is embedded in the Greek word Jesus was using when he gave this great commandment. We translate the word love, but there's more going on in Jesus' words than just desire. It's more than just desiring God. It's more than just feeling fondly toward God. That's kind of not what's going on in this use of the word love. For Jesus, in this context, love is something bigger than the desire for somebody. Love is bigger than fondness towards someone else. For Jesus, this text, the ancient and highest commandments, holds the meaning that we use in our English word benevolence wrapped up in the word that gets translated love. We want and we work for and we promote the goodness and well-being on behalf of another and to do it for no other reason than that it benefits the other person. That's embedded in that word. Yes, love is desire, but it's more than desire as well. It is possible to desire something and not work toward the good of that something. I can desire a taco, but I do not wish it well. I wish to eat it. 
I can desire a woman, but I do not wish her well. I simply want to satisfy my sexual desires using her body. So in English, we use the word love, and we can often divorce it from the meaning benevolence. We can use the word love and divorce it from a sense of goodwill on behalf of the beloved. That's why the Inuits have lots and lots of words for snow, and that's why we need lots and lots of words for love. Because conceptually, when we have desire and we divorce it from benevolence and we use the word love, that could be very misleading. Actually, desire divorced from benevolence, we've got a better word for that. We would call that lust. That's what we have in our language is an intuitive understanding that that's a bad thing to be selfish in our concerns for another, but we don't often uh, contain it in our concept around the word and meaning of love. So when Jesus issues this commandment, he's also talking about the benevolence side to carry this idea of deep concern and work toward the well-being of others setting aside selfish desire and service to the well-being of another. That's embedded in these words of Jesus. So, we know at an experiential level what that's like, that kind of love that works for the well-being of another. It's the way parents love their kids. They work for the well-being of the children. It's the way grandparents care for grandchildren. It's the way that elders have that kind of love for the young. What's remarkable about the way Jesus made this the centerpiece of our religious tradition was how indiscriminate he was about when to deploy this kind of love. Because he taught us not to just deploy this kind of selfless working on behalf of other people love toward our friends or our kids or our grandkids or our family, not just for our people, What's remarkable is that Jesus describes a spiritual life that the result of which is an enablement on our part to extend that same kind of friend love, family love to outsiders and to strangers and even to enemies. So there's a wing of science that is developing right now, evolutionary psychology uh, and evolutionary sociology, and it talks about how human beings function as a result of how we got here. And the basic idea is this, that uh, you've heard the term when you were in high school, red in tooth and claw. It talks about um, Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest. If you get a mutation that allows you to compete better, then you compete better. You win. You pass your genes on to the next generation. That generation gets to carry those genes along as well. And so there is a strong competitive element in uh, that it's embedded into us that's been passed on to us from generation to generation to generation. But there is also an understanding that there's also a strong cooperative element because over the many, 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 many generations that it took to get us here, those of us that could cooperate in groups together would often compete compete in a macro sense better with other groups. So if our tribe cooperated together, then our tribe could get more food and have more babies and pass along more offspring and grow larger and stronger and divide and become two tribes better than another tribe that did not cooperate as well. So we look inside of our brains and we look inside of how we're wired and we find competitive instincts, but we also find cooperative instincts. 
What's interesting is that the cooperative instincts that we find inside of ourselves usually only extend out about as far as any one of those groups could grow to be, which means that you're between a size of 30, which is a tribal size, or up to 400, which is a clan size. So between those sizes, we're pretty wired for benevolence. We're pretty wired to work on behalf of the good of the others. You see this in your own brain when a house down the street burns down. When a house down the street burns down and the car parked in front of that house is very similar to your car, if the shape of that house and the kind of lifestyle you imagine goes on in that, li- in that house is very similar to the lifestyle that you live, you have one experience of that house burning down. It is a work on behalf of the good of the other kind of experience. You band together with your neighbors and you help. You pitch in and you do those kinds of things. But if you're reading in the newspaper or if you're watching on television someone else's house that doesn't look like yours, filled with people who have a lifestyle very different than yours, who live many thousands of miles away and are not part of your tribe, then you have a very different experience when you find out about that house burning down. Well, that's just wired into our brains. We are wired to cooperate at small group levels. And Jesus' indiscriminate use of this idea of benevolence says, that's just not going to do. The way your brains are wired to live in this kind of cooperative, benevolent posture isn't sufficient. To tap into the interior spirit of God and the life of God is going to be to expand that circle to ever-increasing degrees, to broader and broader understandings of who my people are, who is my neighbor. It's not the guy or the, the person who's in my tribe. It's the person who is not in my tribe. That becomes my people. That becomes the circle. That becomes the breadth. And the point of the spiritual life is to live in such a way to take up the practices which enforce the capacity to awaken to this spirituality that is bigger than my brain instincts tend to carry me. And so Jesus pointed us to a spiritual path, the outcome of which is a way of being human that connects to the indwelling Spirit of God, and the result of that spiritual path is the ability to act for the good of those who are not my people. So, we work the circle. We engage in the ancient practices. We awaken to the divine center. The natural outflow of this spiritual path is awakening to an interior capacity to love this ever-widening circle of people, people we shouldn't like, people who are rude to us, people who are strange to us, people who are foreign to us. Work on behalf of those people and their goodness. So that's what happens. We walk this spiritual journey. We practice self-awareness. We challenge our shadow sides. We see the darkness, we seek the light. Even when we're hopping mad, we're looking for the bigger picture. We don't just make the point in order to win the argument, but we also work toward the good of all, even the one that we argue with. That's all part of the spiritual journey, and it's just weird that people would do that. It doesn't go with the way that our brains are wired, but it's the kind of weird that's pretty familiar territory for people who follow Jesus. So here's a little bit of an insight into the problem that preachers face. Whenever you're sitting in a group of people and you're saying, hey, here's a truth, 
there's going to be a person in that room that's in the power triad. And they're going to hear a really helpful truth like this, hey, you should work for the well-being of other people, not just yourself. And they're going to hear it like a smack in the head. It's going to be a really healthy thing for them because what they need to know is in their pursuit of their goal, in the pursuit of their objective, they need to be concerned about the people that they would leave in the wake just kind of bleeding on the floor in their pursuit of that. That's a great thing for that person who is sitting in the room hearing this truth and hearing having that experience. But in the same room, there's going to be an affirmation triad person who has a very merciful personality, kindness and compassionate kind of personality. And for that person, when we start speaking of this dimension of love, what they are going to hear is going to be quite different. Contend for the good of those who are outside your circle or contend for the good of those who would mistreat you will sound like an invitation to more of the same more getting consumed, more getting chewed up and spit out, more getting not taken care of, more not taking care of themselves, more knuckling under, more honoring the other person over themselves, more acquiescing to the dominant personalities, more giving in to the one that makes the loudest demands, more of the same. Last week, Robin spoke of identities that we latch on to and how they help keep our ego selves intact, and how in the end they will strangle us and suffocate us. Some people are born with pleasant personalities, polite personalities. Some people are born with accommodating personalities, and they're born with patience and kindness, the ability to absorb the rest of us. And thank God some people were born that way. We need a world in which those people are here. But as soon as they discover that their gift really does work for them, that they really can absorb people and be kind to people and compassionate to people, and when they do, people like them and respect them, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from there before they they turn their gift into an identity. And they become the take-care-of-other-people person. And so... Once that happens, that becomes the definition of good. I am good if I am this person. If I am good when I am this person, when do I get to turn it off? When do I get to not be the caregiver? Because to become the caregiver, I now have to become bad. I have to now make the decision, I'm going to stop being good, and I'm going to start being bad because I'm just tired. And so... You can't turn it off. And so this personality keeps going in the pursuit of that be good and care for other people objective because that's what good people do. And as long as they want to be a good person, they've got to keep doing this. When do you stop accommodating? You stop accommodating when you decide you're not going to be a good person anymore. When do you stop caring for others? You stop caring for others at the expense of yourself on the day you decide you're not going to be a good person anymore. And so people with these identities, which I would guess is probably more than half the population, they hear this commandment of Jesus, and at first they gravitate to it. And they think, I can do that. I really can. I can care for people. I can absorb people's flaws. I can be gracious and forgiving. I can do that. And then they do it for a while, and then a while longer, and then a while longer, and then their souls get sucked dry. And then they hear commandment of Jesus through a lens of resentment, perhaps anger, 
they hear the commandment of Jesus as an invitation to go back to the wasteland. Well, that's one identity that makes it very difficult to hear this commandment of Jesus. There's another identity that makes it also difficult to hear this commandment of Jesus. In one of Robin's stories last week, she described my personality. When I am in my blindness, I arrange my life into scenarios where I get to keep all the power. And I can do it two ways. I can exercise direct power over people and circumstances, or I can look into the interior world of other people, kind of see what's going on, understand what the situation is, and then I can extend compassion to them. So I got enough feedback early on in my life that the first one is bad. (laughs) Don't dominate people. So I depended rather heavily on the second one, being the bigger person, the compassionate person. But in both scenarios, it's working for me. Because in both scenarios, I'm getting to stay in the power position. I get to keep my identity intact. I get to tell myself the story that I'm in power, and I get to relax, and I get to feel okay about things. And don't look at me that way. I'm not alone. You do the same kind of crazy stuff. (laughs) We all do some variant of this to support our false identities. And into our identity-propping habits, into our identity-propping instincts, into our identity-propping lives comes Jesus' really important words about the spiritual lesson, love others with the same passion with which you love yourself. And when we hear that, some of us are tempted to hear a toxic story like knuckle under and give in to the dominant personality. Others of us are tempted to hear a different toxic story. Hold on to your power position and be the compassionate, benevolent person. Be the bigger one, but stay in control. So you can see, we can't even hear Jesus' commandment to love one another as we love ourselves. Because when we hear it, we can't help but take this central spiritual truth, jig it around so that it'll fit into our toxic soul identities, and then bring it in and make it work for us. And so we can't hear what Jesus is saying unless we first do some interior work. What we do is we hear Jesus' words, We sense that there is truth and life in them, and we set off to do what a good person would do to respond. Now, we don't always respond by asking the very first question we should be asking. I know for most of my life I didn't ask that. We don't ask ourselves about how our false identities are skewing what we're hearing. I never ask myself about how to follow Jesus' commandment. It never occurs to me that knuckling under might be a toxic interpretation of Jesus' commandment. It never occurs to me that be powerful and compassionate might be a toxic interpretation of Jesus' commandment. We just set off to obey Jesus. And we give the endeavor all kinds of energy and all kinds of effort, but we completely miss the point, and we end up in a really unhealthy place with some really harmful accumulated side effects. And all the while, we've been thinking that we were doing a good thing. What a bummer. (laughs) So, this is what Robin put up last week. Now, by the way, that is not a bug. That's the shell 
that that used to live in. That's what cicadas do. I read up on that when I was looking for the picture. The greatest of these commandments comes with a prerequisite requirement. The greatest commandment of Jesus comes with the, re- the requirement that we crawl out of these limiting, constricting, suffocating, cicada shell identities. We have to step away from our false identities and awaken to the only true one. Robin mentioned it last week, that each of us, every one of us, is subject to only one identity that is a true identity, that we are, every one of us, we are the beloved one. People, all of us, are caught up in destructive life patterns that are born out of false identities. That's what's going on every time you and I take a breath. That's what's going on every time you and I wake up and go start our days. That's what happens every time you and I go to work. It's what happens every time we make a meal. We are under the control of a false identity. And into that mix, into that reality, Jesus calls us to a very nuanced kind of love the kind of love that requires us to step out of our false identities. If yours is a power personality, compassion is going to be a problem for you. If yours is a compassion personality, knuckling under is going to be a problem for you. But one that I didn't even mention, if yours is a security personality, then if you obey Jesus and you go to work on loving the other, you might be motivated by your false identity's need to secure some future quid pro quo where you're going to get something back. If I take care of you, then maybe you'll take care of me one day. I'm getting safer. And so here we all are trying our best to do the thing that love asks us to do, trying our best to do the thing that Jesus taught us to do, but because we're doing it for false identity reasons, we can't keep it up. It, turns, it becomes unsustainable. Then it turns toxic. Then we think, oh my Lord, I tried that once before. I don't ever want to do that again. And damn, why is this so stinking difficult, Jesus? So, Jesus did not just teach us the commandment. He also taught us how to live out the commandment. Right there, from our journey to oneness lesson. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it does, if it does fall into the ground, if it does die, then something magical and something unexpected happens. Because there is life, our tradition tells us, on the other side of death. There is hope, our tradition tells us, on the other side of despair. There is true life on the other side of the false self. And so, our tradition says, become a willing participant in the death of your false identity. Become a willing participant in the death of your false identity. So here's a practical suggestion. When we gather on Sundays, when we talk about working the circle, when you look at the announcement, it is all one great big concerted effort to become willing participants in the death of our false identities. That's why we start with the layers of belonging. That's why we work with the service quadrant and the learning quadrant. That's why we work the contemplative quadrant. It's why we work 
the communal quadrant. It's why we do all the things that we do is it helps us become willing participants in the death of our own false identities. So here's just one practical suggestion. When those two red eyes that Robin spoke about last week and the hot breath and the deep guttural growl, when that shows up, and you'll know it shows up because you find yourself compulsively straining to win the argument, even if you know that it's not that big a deal, you know you've got to win. When you are compulsively straining to fill up the bank account, when you know that you're good for the next several months at least, but still you can't sleep at night because you've got to have that security in place. When part of you is grinding through the night hours because you've been slighted or you've been rejected or someone has said something about you and all you can hear is how they don't care for you when that happens, when the strain comes, when the grinding comes, when your night hours are given over to the toxic effects of the false identity, a practical thing we can do is to simply make a prayer, a simple prayer, something like this. Holy Spirit, I cannot see where my false identity is false. I just can't. I can't see how I'm chasing the wind. I just can't. But I must be. Because what I'm doing and what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what I'm saying that makes so much sense to me is just characterized by all this straining and all this stressing and all this grinding and all this striving. And that, I've heard, is a good indicator that my false identity is at work. I can't even see it. And so I am asking you, Holy Spirit of God, to come begin to dismantle this identity I can't even see. And we use a very simple one-word prayer, and the word is welcome. Welcome, Holy Spirit, to dismantle a false identity I can't see. Welcome, truth, to dismantle my falsehood. Welcome, life, to dismantle where I'm dealing death. Welcome love to my fear. Welcome wisdom to my blindness. A one-word prayer, welcome. Welcome. And embedded in that one word is the prayer, Holy Spirit, set me free from what I cannot even see is bondage. In that one-word prayer is wrapped up the idea, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to what I cannot even see is my own blindness. Welcome. If you will Google the term welcoming prayer, the very first search result will come from a group called Contemplative Outreach, and there's plenty on that page that will help you know about, read about, and integrate this simple one-word prayer practice into your life. And you use it whenever you start to feel, when you start to feel the fear, when you start to feel the anxiety, when you start to feel the criticism, the reactionary, reactionary posture that wants to take the other one down, whenever you've got the false identity reaction coming up, welcome. Welcome. I release this dimension of my false identity, welcome. I release that dimension of my false identity, welcome. So I encourage you to read up on the welcoming prayer. Just Google that term. You'll find everything you need to know. But for now, I'd like to practice together the welcoming prayer. Go ahead and close your eyes. Find a comfortable posture.
The time to use this prayer is when we are having an afflictive emotion. The time to use this prayer is when you're having that negative reactionary response. So take your mind to the last time you begin to have a strong jealousy response or a strong anger response or a strong self-recrimination or self-loathing response, any one of those negative feelings, take a moment and just bring back to your mind the last time you had that. And now go ahead and just feel the feelings that you felt at that time. And I will lead you in the words of the prayer. And if you want, you can follow along in your mind. But in your mind, in the face of those emotions, simply say this, welcome. Slow your breathing down and synchronize that one word prayer with the out breath. Welcome. Then again, and then on the out breath, welcome. That's the prayer. That's the practice. What you're doing when you do this prayer, when you do this practice, is making a series of affirmations, and you can articulate these or you cannot articulate them. They are embedded in that very single one, one word. But you might say, I could be chasing power and control. If so, I let it go. Welcome. Welcome. I could be chasing security and safety. And if so, I let it go. Welcome. I could be chasing approval or affirmation. If so, I let it go. Welcome. 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 Because we chase stuff, that's what we do. It's what our false identities do. We are compulsed to go after things, even when we can stand back and see that our reaction is way too strong. We still have that deep inner compulsion. That's what false identities do. And when that's happening, our inner peace is rocked. And the simple one-word prayer is a way of returning to peace, slowing down our breathing, inviting the Holy Spirit to begin to deconstruct those false identities welcome. It's a prayer that says, I can't even see what my false identity is, but I welcome its dismantling. I willingly consent to it in a one-word prayer. Welcome. So I encourage you to read up on and to practice the welcoming prayer. 
Spirit of God, we consent to the dismantling of our false identities and we ask to be equipped to take up the great commandment to love others as we love ourselves and to do it freed of the baggage that our false identities carry that get in the way. Be that so in us, Lord, among us. In Jesus' name, amen.